1: That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your host, Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on KCA 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and 1050 AM Palm Springs.
0: So let's pull them out here. Uh, Stephen Singler, thank you for being here.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: So, yeah. Stephen, what made you jump into the, um, the ballot election and, and, th- and doing this sort of uh, a book?
2: Well, the story starts back in 2000. And uh, what really motivated me to, to go at it again and eventually get it into this form and get it published was the 2016 election with, with Donald Trump uh the the key thing i thought about in that election because it does go back to 2000 is that the polls were wrong when the polls are significantly and seriously wrong uh that to me raises major questions and that's really where this story starts so if you go back to the night of november 7th 2000 uh, the presidential, the general election of 2000, and we may all have a memory, or many of us may have a memory of, I'll use one example, but Peter Jennings of ABC television comes on around 9.30 or 10 on the East Coast and confidently announces that Al Gore is the next president of the United States and that he'll follow Bill Clinton in the office. This is the first time in 48 years That you have three democratic administrations back to back to back, and that's pretty significant. And you also have in Gore, generally speaking, you know, someone who's interested in the environment and climate change and education and energy alternatives and all of those things. So, you know, that's what's presented to us, and uh, George W. Bush will fade into history with Dick Cheney. About two hours or so later, Jennings comes back on. Jennings made his announcement, of course, based upon polling, based upon exit polling, where people come out of their wherever they voted in their precinct and they say, I voted for X and you know, this is all based on statistical ex- extrapolations and it all worked fine in the past and when a network of someone at that level goes on and makes a projection about the President of the United States, they know what they're talking about. They have to. Jennings comes back on. He says, oops, uh, sorry, uh, we really don't know who the winner is, uh, and we have to withdraw what what was said earlier. The other networks were going through similar gyrations at that time. We'd never seen this before. So at about 2.15 a.m., now we're in November 8th, Fox decides to announce that George W. Bush has won the election. He has a cousin who's working over at fox named john ellis and ellis gives the go-ahead and they make this pronouncement based upon not not entirely sure what but the other networks fall in line and we're now told that george w bush is president so now you have an entirely different vision of what the future is going to look like uh... so then as many will recall the lawsuit started the recounting started And it went back and forth. Bush was ahead by approximately 537 votes out of about six million cast. But the really curious part of the of the election was that you had around 200,000 overvotes and undervotes. An undervote is where the the punch card, and that's what we're talking about here, goes through the machine repeatedly to be counted and it it looks as if the person voted for no one. So in other words, you punch out the little piece of paper, the chad on the card, and somehow it, it goes back into the hole, and that's a non-vote. Or, contrary-wise, uh, uh, As the ballot goes through the machine, a bunch of chads come out and it looks like someone voted for too many people for president, for example, and that's called an overvote. So you had in the neighborhood of 200,000 of these overvotes and undervotes combined, and if you'll recall what I just said, Bush is ahead by 537 votes. So what went wrong with those 200,000 ballots? And that's of course where the, all the legal arguments started, all the political wrangling. And to give you one example, the Democrats in their legal fight focused on Miami, uh, Dade County in southern Florida. In, in one of the precincts that I was later involved with, they, they voted 10 to 1 for Al Gore. So, and there were about 10,000 rejected ballots. So if you extrapolate that out, that's 9,000 votes for Gore that didn't count, that were thrown out. Well, 9,000 is a bigger number than 537, so based upon that extrapolation alone, you could say that Gore would have won. Ultimately, the Florida uh, Secretary of State, Catherine Harris, and Jeb Bush, the governor, managed to sort of work together to shut down the recounting it went to the Supreme Court, as everyone knows, and by a five-to-four vote on December 12, 2000, Bush was made President of the United States. I had a friend uh, uh, who lived in uh, Fort Lauderdale, which was in Broward County, and the two major areas, the three major areas that the Democrats focused on were Miami-Dade, Broward County and Palm Beach but especially the first two. So my friend named Jack lived in uh, in Fort Lauderdale, Broward County, right at the dead center of the election problems. So after all the dust had settled right at the end of December of 2000 I got a call from him and I mean he knows I'm an investigative journalist and look into weird and unusual things and have done it for a long time and we started talking and he told me about his and his wife's experience in the 2000 election and what he said was that they had absentee punch card ballots that they had received well in advance of the election in October and they did what you're supposed to do, which is to take a, a stylus or a pencil or whatever and to punch out the chad uh, for your selection for the President of the United States. Others as well, but just focus on that. They did that, and he, he and his wife finished, and then he turned his card over, and he noticed that the chad had gone back into its hole. And what you're normally supposed to have in that situation is the term, the infamous hanging chad. So you punch it through. It's partially dislodged. But what he noticed was that that isn't what happened. He is a mechanical engineer. He had worked for years in manufacturing and how things are made, and he knew something about that. So we started talking, and he said, well, to finish that part of the story, he said, we went back. We re-punched out the chad. We tore it off the back and we mailed in our ballots, and we never gave it another thought. And they went on vacation, they came back, they sit down on November 7th to watch the election returns, and suddenly they're watching all of these problems unfold around what I just described. In their particular case, it would have been an undervote had they not taken that extra step the Chad went back in the hole. It would have looked as if they had voted for nobody and their vote would have been negated. So suddenly, they're thinking, well, this was just a idiosyncratic little thing that happened to us. There are 60,000 to 80,000 undervotes hanging out there in the aftermath of the election. And Jackson said, that's, you know, an extraordinary number. And, what what actually happened here. In the resolution of the presidential election, what we were told was, well, the, these votomatic machines that count the votes probably weren't working. Or, well, the people who were voting just weren't smart enough to figure out how to push that little piece of paper out. Or something else. But there was never given any reasonable explanation why the exit polls were totally wrong, an unprecedented event on American television. So my friend said, the question that nobody's asking here, and he was asking it as a mechanical engineer, is, what about the cards? The cards were effectively neglected. Nobody's really focusing on that part of it, the machines, the people, etc., but not that. And he said, I think you should look into the cards, where did they come from, how were they made, how does that whole system work? And, you know, I didn't uh, I didn't quite know what to make of that at the start, uh, but he said, you know, maybe we could get our hands on some of those same batch of cards, but those that had not been used, and sort of examine them and, and see what was possible. That it seemed like a real long shot, I mean to be honest about it. This is getting to be the first week of January two thousand one. The Bush inauguration is on the twentieth of January. And I being a adventurous sort and an investigative journalist and being perplexed by what had happened because from my point of view anyway, there were no answers at all. I said, Okay, I'll I'll come down and you know, we'll see if we'll look into this and see if we can learn anything. So I did that, and we had arranged to meet with the director or the supervisor of the election warehouse in uh, for Lauderdale, where the the cards were stored. that would be both the cards that had been used in the election and which was millions and uh, those that had not been used, they always order more than they're going to use. But a year or so earlier, they had ordered 1.5 million cards from a company that comes out of Omaha, based in Omaha, called ES&S, probably the largest elections system uh, in the United States. So we went down, we talked to the fellow we asked him if we could have some of the unused cards, and really, to my surprise, he said, "Sure," and he gave us some from two different card manufacturers. The minor one in that election was co- was from a company called Sequoia Pacific in California, but the major one was es and he gave us a, a large pad of those and a smaller pad of the others. And I think I think what's important about that. Is that these people, we talked to them, you know, face to face for an hour or so, and they did not have a clue as to what happened in the election. They said, you know, we did what we always do. If you, if you can think back to that period, they were just being hammered in the media. You know, these people are stupid. They're incompetent. They're corrupt. Lawsuits are flying around. Comics were making jokes about them. And they were truly perplexed. Like, we don't, we, we would like to know what happened. And I think that's part of the reason that the guy handed over the cards. It was like, well, if you could learn something, you know, that'd be great. So we left with these cards and we, uh, uh J- again, Jack's an engineer. He knows something about the manufacturing of things. Uh, um, inside the card, the punch card industry, There's a machine called a strain strain gauge which measures the appropriate pressure needed to remove a chad from a card. It's called bursting density. That's the pressure you need and the standard inside the industry is between 150 grams and 300 grams. It should fall within that range. So we set about trying to get a strain gauge and trying to examine the cars in more depth and see if these fell within the range of that. Uh, it was very difficult to come up with something like that. We looked all over South Florida, and eventually Jack had to fa- fashion his own sort of contraption based upon or upon using a, a digital. Uh, uh, Something to measure weight digitally. So we we did that, and he began a really in-depth examination of the cards. He took photographs of them. He blew them up thirty times. He studied the perforations on the cards. He studied the bursting density, all of those things, and he began to feel that there were perhaps on some of the uh, ESNS cards things that were not that were questionable. Let's just put it like that. He was finding consistently uh, it took more pressure to push out some of these chads and he was finding that they all sort of dislodged in the same way. And to him, it raised the question of, you know, is this something that's random or by accident or is this something that could be, uh, you know, produced this way to behave in this way? So, again, we were just in the process of doing research and asking questions and uh, and to him at least it began to look as if this needed much more you know examination in a qualified lab that costs a lot of money we were working on the notion that you know Bush is coming in in what you know 15 days now 10 days et cetera, and we need to do something quick to learn more about this and possibly get a result that could be quite important. So within about 10 days all of the things that I'm talking about had happened. He had had some preliminary results. He felt that there was something there and we needed to do something. I had worked with uh, a producer at 60 Minutes in the Past, 60 Minutes, of course, the CBS award-winning investigative journalism show, the very top of the heap in televised journalism. And I called this individual and explained the situation, and it took her about, you know, as I wrote, about 60 seconds to understand the implications of what I was saying that in other words if cards could be created to behave in a certain way and if they had behaved in that way and that votes were as a result of that were effectively changed as the cards went through the counting machine and back through the counting machine which is what went on in the aftermath of this of this election because the voting was so close if it's in within point you know half of one percent then you have to do the recounting that's what happened we had anecdotal information about every time the cards went through the machines the the voting tallies changed well how could that be so there were an array of questions on the table in front of us and we were finding that you know looking into the cards was a pretty good idea a pretty good starting place so the producer contacted mike wallace the the most Famous, as we all know, of all the 60 Minutes uh, reporters or anchors, uh, whatever you want to call them, and it took him about 60 seconds to say, "You know, we should look into this. We should see what what we could find out." Because, again, to go back to the original question, how could the polls be wrong? In other words. Between the time that those people came out of the polling booth and said I voted for X and the time that those votes were counted or recounted, something changed. Something happened. What was it? That's the primary question on the table. So CBS then jumped in to the story, and I was told that I had to back off and that they were going to get more cards, they were going to run more tests in a qualified lab, again, a very expensive proposition. They were going to see if there was a real story here, and they were going to try to get something on the air fairly quickly. Up until this point, I think the story is pretty clear, and now it's gonna start to get muddy, because I was effectively told, if we're going to get involved in this, you're going to have to go away. We're going to take it from here, and you're going to have to take it on faith that, you know, whatever happens here is going to to work out all right. So a very unusual position for a journalist to be put into, but I didn't know what else to do, and I made the best decision I could at the time based upon what I knew. And I said, okay, you know, you run with it. So they went to Florida. They got more cards. They took cards, and they tested them. And they wouldn't tell me, essentially, what the results of all of this were, but it was obvious that they were putting more money into this and more time and that they were learning something. And I think they were learning something of significance. So eventually, a lot of time passed in the interim here, and eventually they came back and they said, what we really need is an an insider in the industry to go on camera and to explain all this to the public and somebody who, you know, can be a talking head on the air. Now, I had been told back in January, February, that I couldn't have any more involvement in this situation, but over time, I was not very comfortable with that. So I... I managed to contact the the manufacturing plant for ES&S, which is in suburban Dallas. I went there, I sort of talked my way into their factory to get a tour of how these cars are made and what this whole system looked like. And I went down there and it was a fairly nerve-wracking experience because they didn't know who I was. They were very nervous in the wake of all of the problems that had happened in Florida I started asking questions about that. You know, could I see how the cards were made for Miami-Dade County and Broward? After a not very long period of time, they more or less showed me the door. But I did get a much greater sense of how this process unfolds and what I was told by the manager of the factory was that, and this is the way he put it, this is a direct quotation, Uh, he became exasperated at one point and said, we live in a one-five-thousandth-of-an-inch world. And I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, if you change the calibration on what are essentially these these knives that are on a stamping wheel that come down on the card to cut the little perforations and make what will be the chads, if you vary that by one-five-thousandth-of-an-inch, it can change the performance of how the card operates. So here I am in this plant in the wake of the election, and regardless of anything else about it, I'm being told that basically our democracy (laughs) revolves around one five thousandth of an inch on a stamping wheel. And I were watching the wheels operate, and I realized that, well, you know, even if they got dulled by usage over a period of time, you could. That would that might have an effect of one five thousandth of an inch, so there was just suddenly this realization that my God, you know, this is this is what we're dependent upon here. So naturally, either by intention or not by intention, things could go wrong inside the system, and you could end up with the mess that we had. They, CBS, I think, had kind of come up against a wall where they'd learned these things. And I think they'd confirmed various things, but they needed somebody to to go on camera and, and talk about it. If if you recall or the audience recalls the movie The Insider, uh, it, it's very it's a somewhat parallel situation to that, where it's a very good movie. Russell Crowe's a scientist in the tobacco industry, and he wants to come forward and talk about addiction and how cigarettes are made addictive, and he sort of sacrifices his life for that, and then CBS pulls back and decides not to really run all of his interview, and he's hung out to dry. It's a very, very good movie, and it kind of shows you how the, the very large corporate mainstream media works in certain ways. And this situation, they were looking for exactly that person, and I was told you know not to do anything or not to try to do anything and that's the point where things stood at the end of the summer of 2001 when 9/11 happened and that completely killed everything that I'm talking about here and that as many will recall bush had a fairly low approval rating forty percent in that area or something maybe fifty percent leading up to that and in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 you know he had decided to go to war in afghanistan and has a 90 percent approval rating and there was nobody left who wanted to hear about the 2000 election so in, in my mind, the point of the story is that we, we were at, we had a moment at the start of 2001 with all of this information, and there's more than I've laid out here, but essentially that's the story. We had anecdotal evidence of how these votes had changed on the night of the election and after that when they got recounted. We had absolute evidence that the polls were wrong for some mysterious reason. We had, I had looked into the absolute fragility of our voting system, and CBS, I think, had done considerable legwork to try to,
1: to find out if it's right for you.
2: To bring this to fruition. And it was a, it was a very difficult story, and I understand that. And I And much later, I would learn that they had found someone who was willing to go on camera. I think it was much further down the road. But that person wanted to be indemnified against legal action. In other words, they could be protected from being sued or all of that, the details could not be worked out and it didn't happen. And so this is a story about something that didn't happen in 2001 when I think there was an opportunity to really get to the bottom of the problems in our election system where this privately held company ES&S is very hard to get information from they had very deep ties to the Republican Party and there was an opportunity to really learn more about this and to figure out what actually did happen in the 2000 election and it just didn't come together at that time and I remember having conversations back then with this producer at 60 Minutes and saying, you know, if, if you don't straighten this out, um, you know, anybody could could start to manipulate this system for any ends that they wanted. The, what, the, the other thing that happened that I haven't said is that because the punch card system had faltered in that election, the same company, ES&S, had rushed in not just in florida but around the united states and said well let's replace that with electronic voting and they, and they sold the electronic voting systems as well they sold seventy million dollars worth of equipment in florida in 2002 janet reno uh, ran for governor against bill mcbride there were the same kinds of problems resulted with electronic voting and they couldn't figure that out and reno had eventually had to concede much like gore had to concede in 2000 so you you replace the punch card system with something that was clearly vulnerable and i and i had said in my conversations in 2001 you know anyone could get a hold of this and manipulate it and that was sort of poo-pooed and i thought i said you know anyone outside the united states even if they had the capacity with electronic voting to do something could do that, and they said, well, that you know, that's impossible. That could never happen. So this story sort of became dormant over a period of time. In 2004, as you may recall, John Kerry was running against George W. Bush. He was the key state in that election, was Ohio. At 11.14 p.m. on the night of the election, he was ahead by a, by a substantial margin, and the voting and the system went down in, in Ohio. It was sh- thrown to some other uh, backup computer system, which I think was in Kentucky. When it came back up, uh, Bush was ahead, and he went on to win the election. And books have been written about that and a lot of other information. But John Kerry has recently written his own book and has more or less conceded that he thinks something Pretty funky went on with that election. So we know 2004 had its problems, or 2000 had its problems. Then you have 2004. And the story again was rather dormant. But then comes 2016, in which again all the polls are absolutely certain that Hillary's going to win. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, she didn't even visit some of the upper Midwest states because it was so obvious that she was going to win there. She lost all of them. So that was what revitalized me to sort of bring this story out of the uh, cabinet and (laughs) look at it again and to say, we have never straightened out these problems And we missed the opportunity in 2001 when that could have happened. Kerry didn't pursue the thing in 2004 because he just didn't have the stomach to fight it. And now with Trump, we have what appears to be a complete anomaly that that every poll was wrong. How could they be wrong? What does that imply about our system? I'd said earlier that what if foreign factions decided to get involved in our elections through computerized voting? Well, who knows what happened. So, and now we come up to the very present moment where the same problems get recreated in the two thousand and eighteen midterms with questionable things in Georgia, in the governor's race, and particularly, in florida in two more in the senate and governor's race so i think this story is a a cautionary tale i think it's telling people sort of what happens when investigative journalism does not follow through and does not present information to the public that could be very very important and i just thought it was worth going back to it and bringing it out again and bringing it up to date so that's what i've done
0: well, and very well uh, what, now, what is the primary reason that these things are being done like what do you, is there like a uh, a cabal or a group of people or something in essence that makes these plans to have these things happen during the elections
2: well what let me give you a kind of a, a technical answer on that one of the things that that when i was in florida with jack in early 2001 uh, we we went to broward county as i told you this, the elections warehouse there and then we went to down to Miami-Dade, which had ordered 4 million of the S&S cards, and we tried to get more cards from them that hadn't been used, but the guy was very nervous and wouldn't give any up. As we were leaving, he said, well, there's a dirty little secret buried inside the punch card system. And we said, you know, well, what's that? And pressed him a little bit, and he told us. And basically what he said was all of the cards are, are manufactured for a specific precinct, so long before they're manufactured, they know where the cards are going. They know who's going to vote there. They know how those people are going to vote. And and they have a blueprint for exactly what's going to go on. So if you wanted to, you know, manipulate the cards or tamper with them in some way, you know specifically who to target. In the aftermath of the 2000 election, the Miami Herald did a, the most in-depth study of the voting patterns there and the problems of anybody, and they determined that the cards in the in the in the minority and Democratic precincts were three times more likely to fail than cards elsewhere. So. You had all of this information sitting out there. You have a you have a, a voting company with deep ties to the Republican Party. You have a manufacturing branch that knows exactly where this product is going and how it's going to be used. And you have an end result where many, many of those votes are negated. And in addition to that, in the aftermath of the election, you have the Republican Party trying to shut down the recounting of the votes or the examination of the cards because that's clearly not what they want so you can draw your own conclusions from everything that I'm saying but I think the overall pattern that has emerged its I think in Georgia in this most recent election has been to negatively affect minority and democratic voting
0: now does this sort of how is it that you can change this then? How, how can we fix this?
2: Well, I think, the, I think what would have happened in 2000 and 2001 is if this had gotten off the ground, I think you would have had very significant questions raised about public, privately held corporations controlling our voting system and in this that particular case they had very obvious leanings chuck hagel was part of that company chuck hagel worked in the bush white house there were all sorts of connections around that so i think that's one thing that would come under scrutiny that we've never quite dealt with i i think we may eventually have to come up just with a different system of voting i think the electronic voting as we've seen time and time again is just very, very vulnerable. You know, we, we just we haven't stopped and addressed the question in a way that I think will get to the answers to that. I'm not an engineer, you know, I'm not I'm not a scientist, so I don't have exactly the right answer to that question. But what I do know is that three of the past five presidential elections in the United States the very best thing you can say about them is that they're questionable and i think that's too weak of a word i think 2000 2004 and 2016 border on illegitimacy and at some point it it appears you know we're going to have to stand back and address the issue i mean i've heard of using uh, some sort of fingerprint technology which would you know might be able to be worked somehow when you go in to vote, uh, other other examples of it, but it's something we just haven't yet really come to grips with.
0: So now, um, ha- have you ever done any polls or heard any polls on how do people feel about the system being um, rigged or um, pre-planned and things like this? So something like what 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 went on? Do people believe in the election
2: system now it's a really good question you know and in terms of a of a specific poll it's it's hard to say but what i what i you know find anecdotally as a journalist is that is that people are very very skeptical about it i mean i think that's what you saw here in in this last election when florida started to uh you know, have its problems. Again, it's recurring problems, and in both cases, it favored the Republican Party. Uh, the cynicism around it, at least that I heard, was was pretty overwhelming. You know, that, that it's a long step from that to say, well, how are we going to fix this and how are we going to make it work? But I'm not, <laughs> I'm not comfortable knowing that people can. You know, um, manipulate computerized voting systems and do it from a distance. There was a very, very good book written on this called "Black Box Voting" by a woman named Bev Harris. um, In the wake of the 2000 and 2004 elections, she's more of a technician than I am, and she talked about how easily it was to reprogram these things. And I just I think it's a sham that. So we go to all this trouble and spend all this money to have these elections and we really don't know what the outcomes are. I don't think we know what the outcomes was in the two thousand sixteen election and you know, we may learn something from that from Robert Mueller. I tend to doubt if we I tend to doubt that we will. I think that'll focus on money and Russians and corruption, but I think the questions go deeper than that. If the polling system is broken what what what's the bottom line reason for that are people just lying in mass about who they voted for just for the fun of it or are these things being manipulated at a much deeper level and that's the question we have to answer
0: so do you think there is Russian involvement in the election process
2: that's the question that I think it's entirely possible that there was Russian involvement in the election process itself. And that, that's that's what I'm raising. I mean, when when I posed that question 15 years ago about, you know, what if a foreign country was able to directly affect voting systems? They know that they had access to voter registration data. We know that but what is the next step in that and you know russians are known for their hacking prowess so i don't again i don't see i don't understand how the polls in the upper midwest which swung the election for trump could all be totally wrong i mean it, it hasn't happened before so again sometimes you just have to stop and ask the right question and get an answer i don't think the whole society has done that And I I just, I'm sort of sitting here, you know, talking about the vulnerability of it. And we can just shrug and go on and say, well, you know, it's fine to, to have Trump as president and just not learn anything of significance about this. But when you've relied upon a polling system that's been effective for decades and it suddenly just falls apart, that seems like a fairly serious thing to me.
0: So what do you think the next move is? Like what, what, should, what should people do? What should, uh, what should a citizen do?
2: I, I think it's true as with many other things. I think we have to demand in some way that our votes are actually going to count. I mean, whatever way one goes about that, through organization or through other means, I think we have to impress upon people to figure out where the problems are and then what to do about them. That you know, the 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 solution, the proposed solution to the 2000 debacle was electronic voting. I don't think it's made the system more secure. So, what what would be the next step here to try to return to legitimacy? Let's say and, and to feel confident that the, that the votes will be counted in a legitimate way
0: wow so okay so now in your book what are you hoping people take away from it what, what are you hoping Well
2: do? I I think part of what what I would hope that people would take away and this is you know as a journalist of 45 years is that you know when I tried to get this story to various media people beyond 60 Minutes and CBS, because when I became frustrated with them and thought they weren't going to do anything, I went elsewhere. And I remember being told by the editor of a major metropolitan newspaper, you know, he kind of shrugged me off and said, you know, if something like that had happened, we would know about it. And I was absolutely perplexed by that statement because that's a, nega- a negation of what journalism is. That's the equivalent of saying if Bob Woodward hadn't you know, gone to the Watergate hearing in 1972 and heard about this little burglary, that somehow all those other things would have happened and Nixon would have just resigned. People, people need to dig deeper for the reality of the political climate that they're living in. They need to be open to hear things that they haven't heard before. I think if they read this, and this is a very small book, I just want to throw it out there. It's called Stolen Future, The Untold Story of the 2000 Election on Amazon, on Kindle, on Barnes & Noble, and other platforms. It's only about a 35-page book, and I'm sort of laying it all out here for you. But I think if you read it and you read the details, I would hope to stir a certain amount of, You know, upset in people to realize how vulnerable and how fragile this thing is. And we all tout our democracy and how important it is. But if your votes aren't going to count or if they can be manipulated in some way, that's an important thing. And, you know, without getting too political about it, I mean, that, that's what, you know, that's what we're living under now. If the polls had been accurate as they always were before, essentially, and Hillary Clinton was president, we'd be having a different experience. It might be better or worse in your opinion, but I think it would have been a legitimate election. I don't know what happened here. All I know is that the system broke down. So I, I want people to be more aware Of the problems sort of behind this situation that they're not aware of I don't think this story I don't think they would know anything about this story or how fragile uh, the elements in it are and I think that's worth knowing about and I think that's worth bringing into the present because the problems are ongoing we haven't solved them, we haven't figured this out but this is some good ammunition for talking and thinking about it
0: so Going back to that one more time, is there someone particular that is behind letting these elections go the way they go?
2: Is there someone behind it? Is that what you said?
0: Yeah. like like, Is it is it just a series of um, bad mishappenings, uh, inaccurate work, uh, lazy work, bad work, or, or is this an actual intended plan to have something happen like this?
2: Well, if you looked at the examples I've given you, they all come down on one side of the ledger. Right. You know, they all come down essentially to favor the Republican Party. And the, the particular company that I looked into is aligned with that. So you would have to do a much deeper investigation to connect all of those dots and have an absolute answer to the question but i think it i think it leans in that direction and i and that again is 60 minutes if you just go back and sort of play it out in your mind i mean if they had followed through on this if they had brought out the information that i've laid out here for you I, i think it would have produced a congressional investigation I think it would have produced significant change in how the system operates. I think it would have called into question the notion of of public privately held companies being in control of our election system. I think it would have shaken things up to a great degree, just like Watergate did in the aftermath of Watergate where certain safeguards were put in and certain things were put in. We haven't gotten to that point. We've just sort of shrugged and said, okay, Trump gets to be president for four years, but I think there's far more to the story, and what I wrote just sort of opens the door into it, and we need that kind of investigative journalism now to be going on in Florida to figure out what really happened down there in 2018, and I think you'll start to get the answers to your questions, but I don't think I don't think you can look at this and feel comfortable that it's just business as usual.
0: Wow. Interesting. And um, what kind of feedback do you get when you talk like this and have this type of book coming
2: out? Well, one of the things I left out was that uh, Dan Rather, who of course was the anchor at CBS News for, I think, about a couple of decades, and who had connections to 60 Minutes, has read this book. He's endorsed this book. The endorsement is, is on the the book was published by a, an online, uh, investigative journalism outfit called whowhatwhy.org. If you go there, you could also get the book. But the Dan Rather quote is there. He said this is information that he didn't know anything about. This is important information about what actually happened back then. And so that feedback you know has been very good. I think I think when you read the book what it sort of crystallizes in your mind, I think everybody kind of has the feeling that something is wrong. But these particular pieces have not really been put together or come out in the way that that it does in this small book. Again, 35 to 40 pages. That's all that's here. I think there's that free-floating sense of there's something wrong, you know, we we don't quite know what it is. Virtually none of us has the capacity to really understand the intricacies of computerized voting, unlike the punch card system. And I think if you read this, it will sort of crystallize that sense of vulnerability for you, that you have people in control of these systems who may or may not have your interests at heart. And regard, it, again, I think, I think of it as nonpartisan. You know, it's not, it doesn't matter which party you're for. It's the vulnerability of it that counts. And, and I don't think we've quite had that realization, you know, on a broad scale. <clears throat> so when people read this, I think they're very surprised. I think they're very surprised to learn about how the system actually worked. And I think they're very surprised to learn that a story like this was, was more or less suppressed, that it was never presented to the American public because it was going to be controversial at the very least. It was going to perhaps stop a presidency that was just getting started and it was going to overturn this whole system of how we vote. So, there's a lot there in in the 35 pages that were written. And I think if you read it, you'll have your own experience of, you know, I'm a member of a democracy and my vote should count. And this doesn't smell right at all.
0: Right. Right. And, uh, Russ Baker, that's the who, why, what, why, where org. Yep. uh, Yeah. Well, fantastic. More great work, uh, for, for you. Um, the book is called "Sto." What's it called? It's called um, "Stolen Future: The Untold Story of the 2000 Election." And our writer is Stephen Singulier. Stephen, well, thank you very much for for telling us about what you've been working on.
2: Well, thank you very much, Alan, for having me on.
0: Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's a l l b i r d dot Code SUPER24.
1: You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com.